This episode of TGC's Word of the Week is brought to you by B&H Publishing, presenting The Storm-Tossed Family by Russell Moore, a new book about how the cross reshapes the home. Learn more at www.stormtossedfamily.com. You know what? If you put family in place of God, if you put sex in place of God, it doesn't matter across the board, you will be dashed. You will be decimated. You will, in the end, have absolutely nothing. And that's what we're being told. Isn't that amazing? This is TGC's Word of the Week, a sermon podcast from the Gospel Coalition. This week's sermon, The Struggle for Love, was preached by Tim Keller, co-founder and vice president of the Gospel Coalition, at Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York City on November the 1st, 2001, shortly after the 9-11 terrorist attacks. For more of this series and other resources from Timothy Keller and Redeemer Presbyterian Church, please visit www.gospelinlife.com. Listen now to Tim Keller on Genesis chapter 29, verses 15 to 35, The Struggle for Love. Follow along as I read to you from the uh, passage on which the teaching is based. It's printed in your bulletin. I'm going to read Genesis 29, verses 15 to 35. And Laban said to him, Just because you're a relative of mine, should you work for me for nothing? Tell me what your wages should be. Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah. The name of the younger was Rachel. Leah had weak eyes, but Rachel was lovely in form and beautiful. Jacob was in love with Rachel and said, I'll work for you seven years in return for your younger daughter, Rachel. Laban said, it's better that I give her to you than to some other man. Stay here with me. So Jacob served seven years to get Rachel, but they seemed like only a few days to him because of his love for her. Then Jacob said to Laban, Give me my wife. My time is completed, and I want to lie with her. So Laban brought together all of the people of the place and gave a feast. But when evening came, he took his daughter Leah and gave her to Jacob, and Jacob lay with her. And Laban gave his servant girl Zilpah to his daughter as her maidservant. And when morning came... There was Leah. So Jacob said to Laban, What is this you have done to me? I served you for Rachel, didn't I? Why have you deceived me? And Laban replied, It's not our custom here to give the younger daughter in marriage before the older one. Finish this daughter's bridal week, then we will give you the younger one also in return for another seven years of work. And Jacob did so. He finished the week with Leah, and then... Laban gave him his daughter Rachel to be his wife. Laban gave his servant girl Bilhah to his daughter Rachel as her maidservant. And Jacob lay with Rachel also, and he loved Rachel more than Leah. And he worked for Laban another seven years. And when the Lord saw that Leah was not loved, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. And Leah became pregnant and gave birth to a son. She named him Reuben, for she said, It is because the Lord has been seen my misery. Surely my husband will love me now. She conceived again, and when she gave birth to a son, she said, Because the Lord heard that I am not loved, he gave me this one too. So she named him Simeon. Again she conceived, and when she gave birth to a son, she said, Now at last my husband will become attached to me, because I have borne him three sons. So he named him Levi. He was named Levi. She conceived again. And when she gave birth to a son, she said, This time 
I will praise the Lord. So she named him Judah. And then she stopped having children. This is God's word. We're moving through in these weeks the life of Jacob, uh, that very ancient figure in the book of Genesis and yet an incredibly modern figure. Uh, Jacob is a man with an inner vacuum, an inner emptiness. Jacob's a man with, uh, uh, as we're going to see a little more, uh, and reasons why, an inner sense of uh, emptiness, and he's desperate for other people's affirmation, uh, other people's blessing, uh, for success, for approval, and so on. Last week, in Genesis 28, chapter 28, we saw Jacob had his first encounter, though, with God, a personal encounter. And he enters into a personal covenant relationship with God in chapter 28. But here in 29, we see something very instructive for us all that though he's begun his relationship with God, that does not immediately create a remedy, a full remedy, for his inner emptiness. Uh, Self-discovery, self-knowledge, inner emptiness, these things are not remedied quickly, even by a first-time encounter with God. And so what we see is part of the process of inner transformation still entails tremendous mistakes and disasters, even after he's had this relationship begun with God. And this, today, we see one more family disaster. If you've been with us during the series, you'll see we've already had one. One more family disaster, and yet God is clearly, as we're going to see, at work in not only Jacob's life, but the life, the lives of those around him. The theme today, the theme of this passage is that people with an inner emptiness give themselves to a hope. Very often they give themselves to a hope, and that is a hope for what we'll call one true love. People with an inner emptiness have a tendency to give themselves to the hope that out there somewhere there's that right person, that that he or that she that's going to somehow make my life right, going to fix it. But what we're going to see here is three things. First of all, we're going to see what is behind that hope for one true love. Then secondly, we're going to see the disillusionment that generally accompanies that hope for one true love. And then lastly, what will actually fulfill that hope? What's behind the hope? What usually that disillusionment generally accompanies the hope? And what will ultimately fulfill it? So number one, we see, first of all, what lies behind this hope for one true love. Uh, We see it when we take a look at the very beginning and see how uh, Jacob got into the situation. Uh, It starts off, the passage starts off with Laban saying, just because you're a relative of mine, should you work for me for nothing? Tell me what your wages should be. Now let's give the context. If you haven't been here with us, let me get you up to date. Uh, Jacob's grandfather, Abram. God came to Abram and said to him, I'm going to save the world through your family. Out of your descendants will come one, the Messiah, who is going to deal with sin and death. But what that means is that in every generation of Abram's family, one child will be the bearer of the Messianic seed, one child the Messianic strain, one child will be the one that God walks with and blesses and who passes the faith on to the next generation. And we saw back in chapter 25 and 27 that Jacob is the one in that generation. That God, though Jacob is the second of two boys, he's the younger son, uh, God had said through a prophecy, the elder will serve the younger. Jacob's the one. But Isaac, his father, loved Esau, his older brother, 
preferred Esau, and Jacob lived, grew up shunted, rejected, second best, resentful. And finally, we saw that what Jacob at one point does is when his father is very old and very blind and near death, Jacob dresses up as Esau and fools his blind father into giving him, Jacob, the deathbed blessing of the firstborn. And as a result, Esau, his brother, is furious with him, vows to kill him, and Jacob has to run for his life, and everything has fallen apart now. Jacob has no family to be the head of. He has no inheritance. He has no money. He's penniless. That's the point here in the beginning. And he runs far away just to survive, to be with the relatives of his mother, who he will never see again, the only woman, the only person in the world that loves him, And now he's starting to work. He's tending the flocks of his uncle Laban. And Laban comes to him and says, look, let's have, let's negotiate a contract. Uh, what should your salary be? You know, you're penniless, but you're working for me. Fine. Let's come up with a negotiation. And when Jacob answers Laban in verses 16, 17, 18, now we see how Jacob is coping with the screw up of his life, with the, with the mess of his life, with the ruins that his life is in. How's he dealing with the unhappiness? How's he dealing with all the hopes that have been dashed? How is he dealing with that inner emptiness now? And we see it immediately when he says, I'll tell you what my wages should be. I'll work for you for seven years in return for your younger daughter, Rachel. Now, immediately we see a few things quickly. First of all, we know from verse 17 that Rachel is beautiful, absolutely stunning, sexually attractive, beautiful. When it says she's lovely in form, It's a word for Hebrew word for her figure. So it's talking about her sexual attractiveness. The beautiful word probably has more to do with her face. She was stunning. But secondly, we see that Jacob is now absolutely in love with her because when he negotiates a price, he says, I'll work seven years. Now, we know from both archaeology and from history that uh, 30 to 40 shekels was a normal price that a suitor paid the family of a bride, of someone he wanted to marry. But if you add this up, uh, one and a half shekels is the normal going wage per month of a typical laborer. And therefore, what is Jacob offering? He's not negotiating. <laughs> he's offering an exorbitant sum. He's offering an enormous sum, which means he's utterly out of his head with love. I mean, he's not, he's not pushing a bar. He's not, you know, driving for a hard bargain. Absolutely not. And he's, it, we, we see that the seven years went by, it says, You know, it was only a few days. He's so much in love. But it's actually verse 21 that we would ordinarily miss, I think, that really shows us just how deep in Jacob is here. It says, And then Jacob said to Laban, Give me my wife. My time is completed, and I want to lie with her. Now, Robert Alter, who is the, a Jewish scholar and probably the leading uh, expert in Hebrew narrative right now, Robert Alter, in his commentary on Genesis, says what's, that this verse, and it's not that easy to see in the English, it's actually not that easy to see for us modern people, that this verse has been a problem for Jewish rabbinical commentators for centuries. And the reason is because it's utterly out of character. It's utterly beyond what was customary. It's utterly indiscreet. What he's literally saying is, my time is completed. Give me my wife. I want to have sex with her. And it was just so indiscreet for the time. It was so out of character for the, and customary. He says that for centuries, Jewish rabbis have been trying to explain or justify the baldness, the brusqueness, the crassness, the grossness of it. But what Robert Alter says, it was very clear, is the narrator is telling us something very simple. Here is a man 
who is emotionally and sexually overwhelmed with longing for Rachel. He's overwhelmed with emotional and sexual longing for her. He will do anything for her. Now, what do we see? Why is he like this? And the answer is, this is how, this is how he's dealing with the failure of his life. He's looking at her and saying, oh, my word, I don't have, you know, never got my father's blessing. Now I've lost my mother. I'm out here. Everything in my life has fallen apart. But Rachel, oh, the most beautiful woman in the, in the whole territory. If I got her, if she was my wife, finally something in my life would be going right. Finally, something, finally there'd be something about my life that would be worth it. Something that, there would be finally something about me that would be worth it. Finally, I'd be worth something. My life would be worth something. It would fix it. It would begin to make amends. This will finally fix my life. This will fill that hole. That's what he's doing. Now, do you say, well, the poor guy, you know, I can see that. I, I've known people like that. Uh, he's sort of an emotional cripple. And, uh, you know, he gets that way about romance and love. But I don't want to let us off the hook very quickly at all. Uh, Ernest Becker, in uh, his uh, Pulitzer Prize-winning book, The Denial of Death, Ernest Becker, a secular man, an atheist, wrote a book trying to talk about how he believes that being secular, that now that religion, at least amongst the educated and the elite classes of the Western societies, uh, uh, the idea of God is sort of maybe he's there in a general way. You might have a general belief in him. But basically, we live in a secular society. And he says that has had as an impact. As he points out that in ancient times, romantic love was seldom the basis for marriage. And even though it was there, modern people load an enormous amount of spiritual freight into finding that right person into romance and into love. We don't want to admit it. We do not want to admit it. We're sophisticated. We do not want to admit, but Becker, I think, and I'm going to read you a, a quote here, says, you don't want to admit to what degree that modern people now are making up for the, for, for the lack of inner spiritual fullness by looking out there saying, I'm going to find that one. See, Becker puts it this way. It's great. Referring to modern secular humanity, he says, we need to feel, we still need to feel, that our life matters in the scheme of things. We still want to merge ourselves with some higher self-absorbing meaning, in trust and in gratitude. But if we no longer have God, how are we to do this? And one of the first ways that occurred to the modern person, as Otto Rank saw, was the romantic solution. The self-glorification that we need in our innermost being, hear that? We now look for in the love partner. What is it that we want when we elevate the love partner to this position? We want to be rid of our faults. We want our feeling, we want to be rid of our feeling of nothingness. We want to be justified. We want to know our existence hasn't been in vain. We want redemption. Nothing less. How do you think Becker is overdoing it? This is not a, this is not a religious person talking. Do you think he's overdoing it? He's not. Think. I mean, you know, this week, for example, I'll get back to this. New York Magazine was talking about how are different people dealing with 
the pressure, how people dealing in New York with, with the uncertainty and the fear and the, the sort of the sense of meaninglessness that, you know, hovers over so many people waiting for the next, you know, for the other shoe to drop and so on. And one of the things that they mention, and this is not my terms, this is in New York Magazine, one of the things they mention that people are doing is what they call apocalyptic hookups. Sex with somebody really hot to give me a sense that life still has meaning, that I'm still loved, that things are still okay. Apocalyptic hookups. But that's what, that's what Pecker's talking about. He says, it's not just Jacob. Frankly, back in ancient times, it wasn't as, it wasn't as prevalent. But Jacob is doing what we do. What are we going to do? How are we going to get, how are we going to get rid of a sense that there's, that our life doesn't matter? How are we going to get rid of a sense that in the grand scheme of things, we're not very significant? How are we going to get rid of that sense of nothingness? Love. If I can find that one true love, that one person, then my life will be okay. That's behind so often <laughs> this desire for one true love is that inner emptiness. What Becker calls nothing less than a desire for redemption. So the first thing we see here is what's behind it. But the second thing we see here is the disillusionment that generally accompanies the hope and this, the, this, uh, the, this, the seeking of one true love. And if you want to see the disillusionment, we see it first by looking at Laban's plot and secondly at Leah's lot. What happens to Jacob through Laban and what happens to Leah through Laban. First of all, Jacob's, uh, Laban's plot. Now let's take a look and see what Laban does to Jacob for a second and we'll see <laughs> Jacob is, remember, a con artist. Jacob is a deceiver, but in Laban he's met his match because the minute he says, I'll work seven years for Rachel. Laban's little mind goes to work because right away he says, now here's a guy that will do anything. Here's a guy who's vulnerable. Here's a guy who's not even, he's not negotiating for a good price. Here's a man who clearly is at my mercy. Now the first thing that Laban does, look closely. Jacob says, I'll work for Rachel for seven years. What does what is, what is Laban say? What does Laban say? I'll tell you what Laban doesn't say. He doesn't say, yes. Do you see that? He doesn't say, agreed. He makes an oblique, positive statement. He says, well, it'd be better for you to marry than somebody else. That's not yes. That's not, okay, seven years and you get ready. That's not yes. Jacob wanted it to be yes. Jacob desperately wanted to hear the word yes, so he heard yes. Do you know anything about that? So he works seven years, and the seven years are up, and he says, now it's my time, and, and then the wedding. And, of course, it doesn't take a great deal of historical or archaeological knowledge for you to imagine. The bride is kept heavily veiled all day. First, there's the procession from her home to the place of the ceremony. Then there's the ceremony. Then there's a huge feast that lasts you know, for hours and hours and hours. She's still veiled. That's the custom. And then finally, at night... The groom takes the bride into his tent. And, of course, a couple of things that are kind of common sense. No electric lights. <laughs> uh, and after hours and hours of drinking, they lie together. And Jacob says, ah, Rachel. But in the morning, he discovers it's Leah that Laban has put in the older sister. And when he runs to Laban and he says, what have you done? 
Here's the denouement. For years, I always wondered, how did Laban really think he was going to get away with it? Because, see, when Jacob comes back, you see what he says? He says, you've deceived me. You knew what I was working for. Now, what does Laban say? He says, well, the custom here is to have the older girl marry the young, uh, before the younger. But you see, that's a fairly lame legal statement, and there are all kinds of devastating comebacks. Devastating comebacks, fine, but this is still fraud. You didn't tell me about this. You knew what I was working for. This is fraudulent. This is cheating. This is illegal. I'm sure there was laws. I'm certain. You know, why didn't he come back? Why, when Laban says what he says, says Jacob, just meekly give in. There's clearly anger when Jacob gets to Laban. Why have you done this? By the way, when he says, what have you done? It's exactly the same thing. God says to Adam and Eve, after their sin, you, why have you deceived me? There's, there's fill, he's filled with fury, but when, what happens is when Laban says what he says, next thing you know, Jacob gives in. Why? The why is, literally in the Hebrew, Laban says, well, around here, it's not the custom to put the younger before the older. And you see, let me tell you what happened at that point. (laughs) Suddenly, a spear went through, a flaming spear went into Jacob's conscience and exploded. Maybe he understood the minute he even used the word deceived. He says, why have you deceived me? It's exactly the same word for deceit in Hebrew that Isaac uses to describe what Jacob did to him. And even if maybe the minute the word was out of his mouth, he began to realize it, then when Laban says, around here, literally all he said was, it's around here, it's not the custom for the younger to be preferred before the older. Suddenly Jacob would have said and would have known, wait a minute. He's doing to me exactly what I did to my father. In fact, think about it. I reached out in the dark thinking it was somebody it wasn't. Just like my father reached out in the dark, touching somebody, thinking it was somebody it wasn't. In fact, Robert Alter says it's so clear that he he quotes a medieval rabbi who commented on this passage passage and imagines Jacob having an angry... uh, exchange with Leah the next morning, and Jacob said to her, I called out, Rachel, in the dark, but you answered, why did you do that to me? And Leah said to him, your father called out Esau in the dark, and you answered, why did you do that to him? And the fury dies on his lips. He's cut to the quick. He's hoisted on his own petard, as we say. And he now knows what it's like to be exploited. He now knows what it's like to be used. He now knows what it's like to be lied to. You see, he's shattered. But that's not all. It's not just his life that's shattered. Now we have Leah. And Leah is now married to Jacob. And what are we told here about Leah? Now, just as artistically, I mean, I mean when, I, when I say artistically, the narrator is an unbelievable artist. I hope you begin to see that as the weeks go on by. And in the, with the greatest economy of style, and with just a few strokes, we learn all about Leah's life. What do we know about Leah up to now? Verse 17. It says, Leah had weak eyes, but Rachel was lovely in form and very beautiful. Now, one of the problems for translators is this word that is used in Hebrew to describe her eyes. And it's a word that means breakable or fragile, and it's a tough word to quite figure out. It's hard to figure out what the narrator is really getting at. But unfortunately, most 
translators don't do, I think, probably what they should do, because the way this translator here uh, translates it, it says that uh, Leah had weak eyes. Well, here's my point, or here's my question. Is that really what the sentence is getting at? Is that the point of the sentence? Does it say, Leah had weak eyes, but Rachel could see a long, long way? No. It's not talking about their sight. It's talking about their appearance. Either she had crossed eyes or she had protruding eyes or something. But here was the point. Here's the point. Leah was unattractive. Leah was homely. And she grew up in the shadow of a younger sister who was utterly stunning. And that's the reason why Laban has to unload her like this. The only way I'm ever going to get Leah married to anybody is I'm going to have to trick somebody into it. Otherwise, I'm going to be stuck with her forever. Leah is the unwanted one. Leah is the ugly duckling. Rachel's the swan. Leah is the one that's been rejected. Leah is the one that people have looked right through. Leah is the one that's been ignored for years and years and years. And that is the way you can understand why Leah, not Jacob, really is her, is his soulmate. Because look and see, starting at verse 31 and following, what Leah has done to deal with a big hole in her heart. What has she done to handle uh, the, the, the brokenness in her life from all those years of rejection? Every time she starts to have a son, it's one of the most plaintive series of, of sentences in the Bible. Every time she, starts, she has a son, she chooses a Hebrew word for the name that expresses her longing for Jacob. So Reuben is taken from a word that means to see because what she's saying is maybe now finally I'll be visible to my husband. Maybe he won't just look through me. Secondly, Simeon comes from the word to hear because he's, she says, now finally maybe she, he's, my husband will listen to me instead of just saying, oh, yeah, yeah, Leah, whatever, whatever. And when Levi comes along, it's the word for attached. What she's saying at every point, she's trying to say, now, finally, will my husband love me. I'm having all these babies. I'm having all these sons. I'm being the perfect wife, at least according to the cultural standards of the time. I'm having all these children. I'm being the perfect wife. What is she doing? How is she handling the hole in her heart, the inner emptiness in her life? The same way that Jacob handled the fact that he was preferred, uh, that Esau was preferred to him, the same way that Leah is handling the fact that Rachel was preferred to her for years and years, she is looking for one true love. She says, if this man would love me, if I could be a wife of this husband, happy mother and wife, mother of children, if my fa- if, then I'd be somebody. Then I'd be visible, see? It's a little more of a significance thing here. Then I'd be worth something. Then I'd be listened to. Then I'd be important. But she's in hell. This is worse than if she never was married because the one person on whom she has put her heart, the one person to whom she is functionally looking, as Ernest Becker would say, for redemption, is in the very arms of the woman in whose shadow she's grown up her entire life. Unbelievable. She's in hell. Laban, Jacob, she's in hell. But now, before we go on and see what God does about that hell, we've got a couple questions and just a couple questions to answer, but we've also got a couple lessons to draw. First of all, there's a couple questions that always come up at this point. I'll be brief, but they're important. Some of you out there, because this is New York City, some of you out there are saying, 
This entire narrative is so offensive to me. This is what I hate about the Bible. It's primitive and unlightened times, talking about women being bought and sold by men. The whole thing is offensive. The whole thing, you know, I can hardly handle. Well, just for a second, listen. Robert Alter himself says, if you think that the book of Genesis, which does mention slavery, polygamy, Bride purchase, primogeniture, you know, the older son always preferred over the younger son. He says, if you think the Genesis writer, the narrator, is supporting these institutions, you haven't figured out how to read. Because at every single place, and it's almost every chapter, at every single place where you have polygamy and slavery and bride purchase and not that sort of thing, in every place where these institutions are deployed, they bring devastation. And if you think that, therefore, the Genesis narrator is somehow... Uh, you know, upholding or condoning these practices, you haven't learned how to read. And and the other thing I'd say for those of you who are saying, "Well, the Bible's so primitive here," and I, you know, this is we've gotten beyond this. Uh, let me descend into sarcasm for just a second. Of course, I would never do this without your permission. Uh, so let me just descend for a moment. Isn't it great that we live today in modern, liberated New York, and we don't live back in those times where a woman's looks could just set the course of her entire life? Uh, how her life even turned out would be almost completely determined by how wonderful she looked physically. I mean, isn't it great that we've gotten beyond that? Okay, now I'm I'm done. (laughs) And what I'm trying to say is, how in the world could you imagine you could get beyond the Bible? Fundamental human nature, fundamental human problems, fundamental human questions are the same. Another question that comes up, you say, I'm looking for the heroes, and I can't find any. You know, I'm reading it. Okay, where are the heroes? Isn't this ancient literature? Aren't these these wonderful ancient documents? Doesn't every culture, you know, the Greeks, the Romans, the, the Egyptians, I mean, everybody had, you know, the, you know, the Jews too here. All these ancient cultures had these ancient stories in which you have heroes that show us and uh, the virtues that we can emulate, Right? Uh, I read the Book of Virtues, and I saw there were biblical stories in there along with Greek and Roman stories. I'm looking through here, and I don't see any heroes. I, I don't, there's no good people. Well, that's not completely true, but I don't see anybody here to emulate. Well, you're right and you're wrong, and you're concerned. You're right, you're right, in that all ancient cultures in general, that was how they taught virtue. Alistair McIntyre's famous book, After Virtue, points out that in all ancient cultures, you didn't teach values, by the way, in, your, in school in abstract ways. You gave people stories and these legends and these myths of these great heroes and these great people who emulate the various virtues, and through those stories, we're able to enter in and we're able to uh, imitate them. And so you're right in saying that all the other you know, cultures and religions, and they always had these stories and uh, and then that was the rule in the ancient world. But you're wrong in thinking that the Bible is like that. Because the Bible is completely different. And biblical faith is utterly different. Because, see, all other religions have God at the top of a ladder, as it were. We talked about this last week. God at the top of a ladder. And the ladder, are steps, are the virtues. And that if you give your sacrifices and if you're kind and you're generous to the poor and you are moral and you're hardworking and you're honest and you, you live the virtues, you can move on up the ladder and you can be blessed by God or the gods. And every other religion was like that. But the biblical religion, the biblical faith, gives us a God who's not like that. 
over and over and over again in these stories, we see weak people, messed up people, people who don't seek God's grace, who don't deserve God's grace, who continually resist God's grace, and, and don't even appreciate God's grace after they've been saved by it, people into whose life God has to come by sheer grace, intervening, you see. It's utterly different, utterly different. And that's the reason why you're right in noticing there's no heroes in here. But that is the moral of the story. The moral of the story is that morals won't get you into God's story. But God has to come into your story. God is a God of grace, the real God. Now, what are the lessons we learn at this point? And the lessons are twofold, and they're pretty profound. The first lesson we're supposed to learn from here, this especially in the most vivid way, when Jacob wakes up in the morning, it was Leah. We're being taught something. That in all of life, through every event, through every aspect of your life, there always will be a ground note running, a ground note of cosmic disappointment. And you're not going to lead a wise life until you know that. See, Jacob goes to bed with the one. I finally got the one. The one thing, the one person who's going to make my life okay. But what we're told literally in the Hebrew, it says, but in the morning, behold, it was Leah. Now, I love Leah, and I'm protective of her, and I love what we're about to learn about Leah, but for a moment, i got to tell you this. Leah represents something. Every time you get started into a relationship, every time you, get start, every time you move into a marriage, every time you get into a job, every time you get into, into a new project, any time you get into some new uh, pursuit, and you think, this finally is going to make my life right, I want you to know, in the morning, it's always Leah. You go to bed with Rachel. In the morning, it will always, always be Leah. And nobody put it better than C.S. Lewis, who said, most people, if they really learned how to look into their own hearts, would know that they do want and want acutely something this world can never give them. There are all sorts of things in the world that offer to give it to you, but they never keep their promise. The longings which arise in us when we first fall in love or think, first think of some foreign country or first take up some subject that excites us, these are longings which no marriage, no travel, no learning will ever satisfy. I'm not speaking of what would ordinarily be called unsuccessful marriages or trips and so on. I'm speaking of the very best possible ones. There is always something we have grasped at in that first moment of longing that just fades away in the reality. The spouse may be a good spouse. The scenery has been excellent. It has turned out to be a good job. But it, it, the thing that we thought was going to be in the center of it, always evades us in the morning. It's always Leah. And if you get married or if you get into jobs, if you, if you don't realize that it will always be Leah in the morning, that there is something that you want in your heart that nothing in this world can satisfy, that if you go on trying to discard the things you have to get better ones because that one will have it, or if you start to get mad at the world and say, the world's a cheat and I guess all of my hopes have been, are, have been stupid and you try to harden your heart so you're not in agony anymore, or if you pound yourself saying, I'm a failure, all those things, the way of the fool, the way of the cynic, the way of the self-hater, the way... Those are all because you won't admit that in the morning it's always Leah means that the one true love you really want isn't her or him or any human being. And you know what's interesting here? 
is this is a mistake that can be made across the board. It doesn't matter whether you're a conservative or a liberal or something in the middle. Because if you're the liberal type and you're into apocalyptic hookups, but you could be a conservative type. Look at Leah, the epitome of traditional family values. She wants to have babies. She wants to be a good wife. She wants, to, you know, she's going to be somebody because finally I'm married and I've got children and I've got a husband. Now I'm somebody. That's the conservative approach. You know what? If you put family in place of God, if you put sex in place of God, it doesn't matter across the board, you will be dashed. You will be decimated. You will, in the end, have absolutely nothing. And that's what we're being told. Isn't that amazing? Now, what's the hope? Hmm? <laughs> what's the solution? If that's what's behind the, behind the desire for one true love, and that's the disillusionment that accompanies, in general, the pursuit of one true love, what's the answer? Where, where can this desire be fulfilled? And the answer is, look at what happens to Leah. Look what happens in her and to her. Or another way to put it is, look what God does inside her, what, what God does in her, and then what God does for her. What God does in her and for her. Number one, in her. Do you see an interesting progression? Even though she is calling out uh, and saying, my husband, my husband. See, my, my hu the husband's the savior. The husband's the savior. Oh, of course she wouldn't say that, and you don't say that. Oh, you, you would never let yourself say such a thing. But Becker's right. You're looking to the one to make yourself feel okay, to make yourself feel meaningful, to give some sense to your life, to make yourself feel valuable. So she's look and yet she's calling on the Lord too. She's saying, the Lord has helped me. She's fighting. She wants a relationship with the Lord and she's using the covenant name Yahweh, not the generic name Elohim. How did she know about that? See, all other people besides Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob would know of God in the general sense of being Elohim, the God at the top of the ladder. Only Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, people like that, who God enters into a covenant relationship with, God gives his personal name, his covenant name, Yahweh, which means is the name that goes along with the story of salvation, that he's a God of grace, that he's going to come down, that he's going to intervene in our lives. He's not going to wait for us to somehow achieve. She's heard about this. She's using the name Lord, the Lord. Commentators all find it fascinating that she's not just asking somehow for God to help her have babies. She's, on the one hand, in an idolatrous grip. She's made an idol, a, a pseudo-savior out of family. And yet she's calling for the Lord. She's trying to get a relationship with this God of grace at the same time. But finally, the fourth kid. Breakthrough. Do you see what happens? The fourth child comes along, and the word Judah means praise. And there's no mention of her husband, and there's no mention of any, even the child, in a sense. There's even a kind of defiance. And she says, this time, what does, she, what does she mean by this time? This time's different. This time, I'm going to praise the Lord. Look, 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 look. And she stopped having children. Almost the implication is, I don't need to have children anymore. I'm not going to work at it like I was. Why? She took the deepest, deepest, passionate, desires of her heart, took them away from her husband and put them on the Lord. Jacob and Laban, those men, had stolen her life. They've been stealing her life for years. 
But the moment she did that, she took her life back. There's liberation. And she realized she'd be a lousy wife, and you will be a lousy wife or a lousy husband, whether you're married or you're not married, if you don't do the same thing. Or maybe I should ask you this. What is the thing, regardless of what you tell me you actually believe, what your doctrine is, regardless of what you believe, I want to know from you, what is the thing that you need to take the deepest, deepest adoration of your heart off of and put on God so you can get your life back and you can get freedom and you can handle anything? Well, why did she do that? She did that not because it was just a psychological subjective experience. She, what, was, what happened in her was because of what had happened to her. What happens to her when Judah is, is born? She can't probably know, though. She might intuit it. What is God doing for her when Judah is born? Who's Judah? The, the narrator knows. The writer of Genesis knows. Because in chapter 48, near the very end of the book, there's a prophecy that comes and says, Judah is the one through whom the king will come. Judah is the one through whom the scepter will come. And what does that mean? Let me put it in a nutshell. God looks down at a beautiful woman and an ugly woman. God looks down at a woman who's had a designer life and everybody in the world has always wanted and looks at one. Who the, he looks at the girl nobody wanted. Nobody. He looked at the girl who's unloved, who's unlovely. And he says, you're going to be the mother of Jesus. Verse 31 says, when the Lord saw Leah was not loved, let me paraphrase it, he loved her. He's the true bridegroom, the word of God says. He's the true love. He's the only spouse that will fulfill you because he's the only one who won't let you down. You know, Becker puts it just perfectly, and he says, no human relationship can bear the burden of godhood. However much we may idealize and idolize him, he inevitably reflects earthly decay and imperfections. If your partner is your all, any shortcoming in that your partner becomes a major threat to you. What do you want when you elevate your partner to this position? You want to be rid of your faults, the feeling of nothingness. You want to be justified to know your existence has not been in vain. You want redemption, nothing less. Needless to say, human beings can't give you that. And she's free from her idolatry of traditional family values because the God is the true bridegroom. But here's the other thing we got to notice. The reason why she becomes the mother of Jesus is because, not because just God likes underdogs. Is that it? He just, she's the sentimental favorite? No. Because she is a picture of how God is going to save the world. And here's how he's going to save the world. He's not a strong God who says, strong people, if you live virtuous lives, you can come up to heaven. He comes down. He dies on the cross. He fulfills the requirements for you. Jesus Christ says, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. I am the latter. I'm going to live the life you should have lived and die the death you should have died. If you know you're so weak that you need a Savior who died for you, you're so bad that nothing less than the death of the Son of God could save you. If you're a sophisticated New Yorker and you can't say, I'm a sinner and I need to be saved by grace, you're too proud for this incredible salvation that comes into the world through Leah and her boy. God gives Leah, the rejected one, the weak one, the, to be the mother of Jesus because that is how the gospel works. The gospel saves people, not who are strong. The gospel saves people who will admit they're sinners and that they're weak. And what ends up happening? Who goes back 
Jacob, the son who's not loved and who was a deceiver, but now he's humbled into some decent character, and Leah, the girl who's not loved, and they're the ones who bring salvation to the world because that's how the gospel works. Can you handle it? Can you handle it? What a God. He looks at the one without the designer life and said, that's how my salvation is going to work. That's how my son is going to look. You're the mom. Number one, do you see it? If you've been rejected by some human being who you thought was going to love you and make it all right, one of the reasons I think God brings the messianic seed to Leah is because Jesus is going to grow up rejected, lonely, constantly misunderstood, ultimately rejected in the end. God himself comes into the world and knows what it's like to be rejected by all human beings and says, I'll give you a relationship with me. If you see what I've done for you, you can experience my love in such a way that you can handle that. Don't let marriage throw you. If you really want to be married and you're not, it's okay. Uh, You're after a good thing but you won't be ready for it unless you see this. If you're unhappily married and really mad about it, it's good to want your marriage to be better, but you're going to put too much weight on it unless you see this. You see. If you feel ugly, not just physically, but in any way, don't you see a God at the top of the steps, you better be good and good-looking and smart and attractive to make it to the top, but a God who is the steps, Jesus Christ, who becomes a man acquainted with grief, a man who's dejected, a man who's ugly, it says in Isaiah 53, in 52. We could hardly look upon him. Jesus Christ became weak and ugly so that when we believe in him, his righteousness is imputed to us. Do you realize that the Bible insists that though you might look like Leah to God in Jesus Christ, you always look like a Rachel? Let these things pass into your life, and you can take your life back. Let us pray. We pray, Father, that you would help us understand the gospel and apply it to our lives in the various ways that this text uh, can be applied. It's very difficult for me as the, <laughs> as the preacher because it has so many applications to uh, bring it home to the, the varied situations that are represented by the people in this room. But would your Holy Spirit do that? For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to TGC's Word of the Week. Check back next week for another gospel-centered sermon. We also invite you to visit the resources section of our website, thegospelcoalition.org, to find thousands of sermons to help you understand and apply God's Word.